ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Every week, we explore questions and conversations from a Christian perspective, and I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation uh, all week long because, y'all know, I've been asking this of, of multiple people uh, lately, both on this program and just in life, which is, are things as crazy as they seem. And the reason that I ask that is because I have, uh, I've seen people, read people from the past who sort of started out really optimistic and forward looking. And then by the time, uh, by the time the years go by, they become really get off, you kids get off my lawn sort of curmudgeonly and we're at the twilight of American democracy and everything's falling apart and so forth. And so I often wonder, is that just what's going on here? Is this just life or is something uniquely different? And so I I brought this up in our conversation with David Brooks uh, a while ago, and that actually came out of a uh, a book club meeting that that both of us uh, are in with our guest today, who was uh, who was with us that day to talk about uh, some of his books, and that's Jonathan Haidt, who is uh, the social psychologist at the New York University Stern School of Business, and has written uh, one of the books that I recommend when someone says, "What do I need to read?" Um, it's one of the best and most important and informative books, I think, of the last 20 years, and that's The Righteous Mind, um, really changed my entire paradigm of thinking about uh, why people disagree and how to talk across those uh, divides of disagreement. But Jonathan Haidt has an article uh, this week uh, in The Atlantic. I always read what he writes, but I was especially intrigued by this one because he's talking about the Tower of Babel, 
And the title of it is Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, which is one of the questions that I asked him at our book club is, are things really crazy? And I was intrigued because he said yes. And not only could he say yes, he dated it to 2009 and explained it. And a lot of that is being explained uh, in this article. So I wanted to talk to him about it with all of you. Jonathan Haidt, welcome to the program today. Thanks so much, Russell. It's always such a pleasure. You know, I I was interested in the Tower of Babel uh, analogy because what you did with it was not what many people do, which is just uh, this is um, a moral lesson about overreaching technology, sort of a Mary Shelley's Frankenstein sort of a, a story. Instead, you got to a, a deeper level here with what's going on with fragmentation and, and asked that question, are things really uniquely stupid? You think they are. Why is that the case? I do. I do. Um, so the, um, so I'm a, I'm a college professor. I'm a professor at New York university Stern school of business. I've been a professor since 1995. I love being a professor. I love universities. I love my students. And yet something changed in 2014. Something changed. Like we thought it was just with the students. Uh, my friend, Greg Lukianoff, who's the president of the foundation for individual rights in education, He came to me in May of 2014 and said, John, something weird is happening. Students are suddenly, they're the ones asking for protections from speech, saying we can't have the speaker come to campus. This person's views are dangerous, harmful, violent. And he'd never seen it before, and I'd never seen it before. But I had just started to see it at NYU a little bit, and I was reading about it. It wasn't like this in 2012. Mm -hmm. If any of your listeners graduated from college in 2012, they didn't see any of this stuff. And if they started college in 2013 through 2017, they saw the arrival of safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings, cultural appropriations. Like the students were freaking out, finding offense everywhere and prosecuting, filing charges, launching investigations. And suddenly we were all like on the back foot, like, wait, but, you know, I just gave a lecture and I used a word and now you're like reporting me for, you know, what is this? Um, And we thought it was just the students. We thought uh, in our original Atlantic article, The Coddling the American Mind, we thought that colleges were somehow teaching students to think in distorted ways that make them depressed. But we were wrong. Mm. It turned out that this was happening everywhere, and we were just the canaries in the coal mine. We got the first batch of students who had been shaped by social media, because mm. the young people, they went on it right away um, uh, after it changed in 2009. Um, and so now, after 2014, 2015, it became clear, no, this isn't just college, it's affecting journalism and the arts and media and Hollywood. Churches. And by now everybody has seen this. And churches, that's right. It took a few more years, but boy, has it affected, affected churches. Um, and so um, I've been trying to, trying to figure out what the heck has been happening since 2014. It was like something changed in the fabric of space-time. And I, I, I love metaphors. And the first time I tried to figure this out, I wrote an Atlantic article in 2019 where I said, I, I opened with a metaphor, and I hope your listeners won't find this blasphemous, but the metaphor was, you know, what if God has been sitting up there all this time and watching the universe, and it's kind of boring, you know, the planets move as they move, and it's just been doing the same thing for many billions of years. And he says, let's just double the gravitational constant. Well, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll shake things up. And so if God, one day in 2014, just doubled the gravitational constant of the, of the entire universe, 
it would be chaos. Like planets would move closer to the sun and the temperature would rise and planes would fall from the sky. And that's what it felt like uh, after 2014. So that was the mm-hmm. metaphor I used to open that article. And I, I, that wasn't a fully satisfactory answer. And it was when I, I don't remember why, but I, I looked back at the story of the Tower of Babel uh, in Genesis. And it's a very mm-hmm. short story and a very powerful story. And the key line is this. God says, after saying, and, you know, and look, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And yes, hubris and um, you know, pride. But the key line is God doesn't just punish them. He says, let us go down and confound their language so that they may not understand mm-hmm. one another. And that was it. When I read that, I reread that. I said, oh my mm-hmm. God, that's mm-hmm. what happened to us. And so that's what really brought me to understand social media was supposed to connect us. It was supposed to make it effortless to talk to everybody and anyone in one giant community. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be great, and we thought, as late as 2011. Um, but by 2014, it, it was clear, no, it's actually fragmenting us into little bubbles, little shards that we can't communicate. It is basically knocked over the Tower of Babel. What's interesting to me about the Tower of Babel is that there, there really are two motives here. Uh, one of them is is personal glory, sort of personal uh, or, or national platform building. Let's make a name for ourselves. Um, and, and the other is protection and fear, uh, so that we might not be scattered. And we look at uh, we look at what's happening with social media, and then the ripple effects of, of social media. You point to two thousand nine to 2011 as being a point of a big shift that, that maybe showed up later in, in 2014. What happened? Yes. So, so we have to go back to the origins of social media in 2003, 2004. That's when MySpace and Facebook and Friendster come out. Mm-hmm. And they're just glorified address books. You know, you can post mm-hmm. photos of your kids and your vacation, and you can link to other people's pages. So it was more fun than an address book. Um, it was playful. <clears throat> it's not harmful to democracy, not harmful to mental health. Uh, but then Facebook and other platforms, or Twitter, develops the news feeds. Now you're getting feeds. Okay, fine. I can see my friend's new photographs. That's all very nice. But it becomes more about news and politics. Um, and that goes on until 2009, which is when everything changes because Facebook adds the like button. Before then, you just had to read stuff. You couldn't, you couldn't like press a button. You like it. But then Twitter, the same year, adds the retweet button, which is incredibly powerful because now mm-hmm. someone sends you something that is, makes you angry and you click one button, that anger goes out to you know, your 500 followers or friends. And if, if, you know, and if only 10% of them forward it before you know it, that's, it spreads like wildfire. So 2009 is when the architecture of the platforms change, but they don't instantly get nasty. It takes a little while for, the, for, for people to begin to use them to, to perform, to broadcast, to show how righteously angry they are. Um, and as you said, and so, at the, so yes, let's get into this. I, I, I read your, uh, your, your recent essay, the, the Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. And I was so interested to read the two motives that you said. So I'd like to ask you, because when I, when I read the story, and you know, I'm a, for your listeners, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jewish atheist. That is, I'm, I'm raised Jewish. I, I feel Jewish. I identify as Jewish. But I, I, don't, I don't personally believe in God. Um, but I really respect religion. And I think that's why many Christians and, and Jews and others have responded to the righteous mind, because I actually say religion is part of our origin. It, it makes us better. It, it's essential for the moral order. Um, so what little reading I was able to do on the Tower of, of Babel story, 
I, I wasn't sure what the motive was. Because, right, there's one line that suggests it's, you know, we're going to make a tower to the heavens and we're so arrogant mm-hmm. and, and we're proud. Mm-hmm. But then some other commentary I read said it was, well, you know, God had just flooded humanity and killed almost everybody. And the reason they built the city, I, I can't remember if it says walled city in the, in the text, but the reason they built the city was to prevent being flooded again. And of course, a tower, you know, you can't possibly be flooded if you can climb up the tower. So right. can you t- help me? What do, what do biblical scholars say about the motives? Tell, just tell me more about it. Well, most people see it as a, um, as a ziggurat, as a, a, a way to commune with the gods and, and almost to, um, a, as a way to channel power. Uh, there and, and and the reason I think in the text is that sense of uh, let's make a name. You, you see that with Nimrod. You see that with Lamech. You see it at other places in Genesis where it's almost a not just a personal glory. I think, but similar to honor culture of a kind of I have to be powerful and threatening enough that you won't uh, attack me. And so that we won't be uh, fragmented. I think that's what's going on there, which I think is is so similar um, to to many of the impulses taking place. Even even what you mentioned about anger, because I mean, you mentioned in the article, and I've seen this elsewhere, that it's not just that people's anger shows up in social media, but that anger uniquely motivates people to share. Uh, and, and to pay attention to, uh, to to what's on social media. Is that true? So here we have to distinguish between most people and the people who post. Ah, and this yeah. is really crucial. A lot of people don't get this because we evolved, we have this sense of like, read the room. Like you get a sense of most people believe this or that. Yeah. And that you can have that when you're in a room with 30 people because you can see facial expressions. You just get a sense. Um, but what happens with social media is, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people are on it. And, and in any, in any communication, there could be seven people watching 77,000. You don't know how many people are watching. Uh, and of the people watching, almost nobody is saying anything. Mm. Now, most people, my rule is almost everybody is decent. Almost everybody, uh, uh, uh you know, doesn't want to hurt other people. Um, People are generally generally good, although human nature is complicated and we're tribal and we're competitive. We have all these good and bad motives. <clears throat> but when we interact on social media platforms, and they're called platforms for a reason, mm. it is a stage upon which people choose to perform. <clears throat> so it's as if it's as if there had been human interaction, but then suddenly in the early 2000s or the late 2000, you know, 2009, 2012 in that arena, we said, how about if we stop talking to each other? How about instead, let's all meet in the Roman Colosseum and groups of people will go down in the middle and they'll fight it out and we'll cheer. It'll be really fun. And, and, and that obviously is terrible for democracy. And my God, is it terrible for youth, for young people's mental health. Mm. So, um, so it's not that people love to spread anger. It's that some people love to spread anger because they're paid by the tweet. They're paid by the post. And what I say in the article is that social media did not give us all voice. That's what Mark Zuckerberg keeps saying. How could it be wrong to give more people more voice? Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't give more people more voice. The, the four groups of people who use it uh, most uh, to spread, especially to spread anger, but the four groups are the far right, the far left, trolls, who are almost all men, not women, men who 
who get prestige from attacking others and tearing mm -hmm. them down, so trolls, and Russian intelligence agents. The Russian uh, Internet Research Agency has been very skillful. Um, they launched their campaign. They began in 2013, but it really heated up in 2014. They began a really concerted campaign to divide us, make us hate each other, think that everybody's racist, fascist, sexist. Um, so social media is not about what most people do. It, it, it doesn't make most of us into jerks, but it super empowers mm -hmm. the jerks and it super empowers the political extremists. That's not a democracy. When you have a public square owned by a corporation incentivized to make us fight, like the Roman Colosseum, uh, and four groups are using it, you can't have a democracy if that's what your public square is. You know, I have noticed this dynamic at work in real life in churches, congregations, where there was a time when I would say to people, okay, you've got maybe 10% of your congregation that's angry or disgruntled or, or sowing division. 90% of the people are with you. Now, uh, that that dynamic just doesn't work because the 10% are able to really govern what goes on in the congregation. And so if you have... Um, I, I said to someone one time, it's it's almost like a homeschooling co-op that I knew one time that had some flat earthers uh, involved. And what they started doing was just not saying things like global, just because they didn't want to mm. go through the, you know, <laughs> well, we just don't want to okay, go right. through the, it's the just not worth of the trouble. And, and yeah. I thought, yeah. you know, this is exactly what often goes on in churches is that most people are just saying, you know, can we really afford six months of just warfare over whatever it is? And so you just yield to it and self-censor. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then before you know it, that is actually controlling the, the, the atmosphere. That is a great example. I'm going to use that if I may, because uh, that really gets at the central dynamic. Um, so there have been a hundred articles written on how social media is destroying society and democracy. What I hope is new about my essay um, is that I'm a social psychologist and I was really going down deep into the social motivations. How do our social motivations change when you change the architecture of the platform? You change the payoffs to different subgroups of people. That's the question. And one of the many metaphors in the piece is, so there's this great quote from one of the engineers who developed the retweet button uh, at Twitter. And years later, he was interviewed in Wired Magazine, and he said he regretted what he had done because he said they watched the Twitter mobs forming. Mm -hmm. And he said, he thought to himself, we've just handed a loaded gun to a four-year-old. Mm. And that really stuck with me. And that's the metaphor that I took. It's not actually that Twitter's a gun or you know, Facebook is not a gun. It doesn't kill people. I mean, there are some exceptions, but we won't even talk about that. It's more like a dart gun. It's more like you get to shoot a little dart into somebody's arm and it hurts. Like you're not going to die, but you know, I've never been shot with a dart, but we, we've all gotten shots at the doctor. Imagine a really painful metal thing shooting. That would hurt. Mm -hmm. Plus, if you get shot with a dart, there could be a hundred more coming. You just don't know. It could be zero more. It could be a hundred more. You just don't know. So now imagine that you're leading anything. You're leading a congregation. You're leading a homeschooling group. You're a president of university. And you've always known you've got some difficult members um, and you've learned how to deal with them and, and how to sort of, you know, keep the reasonable people in, in charge. And that's the way it's always been. There've always been unreasonable people. But now suddenly around 2011, 2012, when, when the platform, the participation in these hyper-viralized platforms is skyrocketing, around 2012, let's say, somebody passes out dart guns everywhere. Billions and billions of dart guns. Everyone in the world gets a dart gun. 
and most people don't want to shoot anyone. They don't even, they, never, they just put it away in the closet. They don't use it. But these four groups of people, the far left, the far right, the trolls and the Russian agents, these four groups of people are totally excited. Like, wow, we actually get, the more we shoot, the more money we get. Mm-hmm. Oh, sign me up. And so these four groups or, of people or the more, are shooting. Or the more status, because if I attack people who I consider to be uh, more significant in some way or the other, then I'm, I'm actually gaining prestige. Exactly. That's right. So the metaphor, I didn't, I didn't mean literally money. What I meant was yeah. like social oh, yeah. currency. Yeah. And especially for young people, they don't care that much about money. They care much more about their follower account and their prestige. So you get this, this prestige economy and whoever shoots, and especially, you're right, it's not just shooting anyone. If you shoot a high value target, you get more prestige. So people shoot their leaders. So what happens to all of our institutions? Mm-hmm. Imagine a, a pastor with a congregation with a few extremists who make life difficult. And suddenly those extremists have dark guns and they can shoot anyone they want. They don't, they mostly shoot the pastor. Yeah. They mostly shoot the leader. So people leading every organization, TV networks, the New York Times, Yale, all these organizations got stupid at the same time because the dark guns were passed out, the ability of a nobody, a disgruntled nobody, to publicly humiliate or accuse anybody of anything with no proof. The rules on Twitter are you must take things out of context. You're not allowed to put things in context. It's just, you know, very short screenshot. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is why, this is my diagnosis, that America became structurally stupid all of a sudden between 2014 and 2018, it hit all of our, not all of our institutions, but certainly things that lean left became all left. Things that lean right became all, all right. Because the pe- people with dark guns, they're shooting the leaders and they're shooting the moderates. Mm, mm-hmm. So if you're center left and you say, well, now wait a second, maybe it's not a good idea to defund the police. Boom, boom, boom. You get shot yeah. up. If you're center right and you say, well, now, wait a second, maybe Donald Trump is leading down a path we shouldn't go on. Boom, boom, boom. You get shot up. And once the moderates go quiet, everything, it's the extremists who now control. That is so interesting. I I was talking to a a very liberal professor in the humanities who was talking about the way that the far left was holding uh, sort of his department captive. And he said, most of us, you know, we're we're kind of um, we're liberals, but we're 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 sort of um, Hubert Humphrey liberals or, or or maybe to the left of that. But but not um, but you have this very far left that can control everything because they will do anything. And everyone else just sorts of things, thinks, you know, if you just sort of let this go and live with it for a while, it'll work itself out. And I said to myself, that's that's almost exactly what goes on in sort of my uh, conservative evangelical circles, except with the far right. And it's the exact same strategy that is at work. That's right. So let me suggest that your listeners, and I'm going to, so let me suggest um, uh, some terminology here that will help. We we tend to think about left versus right. right. And as you said, far left versus maybe moderate left. Mm -hmm. That's not quite the right term. I'd like to suggest that we really resurrect and focus on the terms liberal and conservative as good things, as philosophical traditions. And the liberal tradition says um, we need individual rights, individual liberty, free speech, freedom of religion, economic freedom. So that's the liberal tradition. It's sometimes called classical liberal. And that's a good thing. And you can be on the right or the left politically and believe that. And conservative is, is, is also an incredibly wise tradition. I, I dated, I think, Edmund Burke, 
is, is the brilliant conservative who didn't say, don't change. He said, you have to change slowly and carefully. We should operate on society as if we were operating on our father. So it's, don't just rip everything down. And he noted the French Revolution ripped everything down. And now look at, and he said that before, before the terror, he said, this is going to go badly. And the next year or two, it went off the rails. <clears throat> so liberal and conservative, we can call those left, right, if you like. But those, I think, are essential for a liberal democracy. You need a gas pedal looking for change, and you need a brake saying, not so fast. And that's the, that's the healthy left-right dynamic. But then we get two other groups. We get the radicals on both sides. Radicals want to burn things down. Radicals want to tear things down. The radical right is authoritarian, um, illiberal, uh, they want to use state power to punish their enemies. So don't say far right, just say, we could say radical right. Um, the radical right is not conservative. Right. Donald Trump was not conservative. It's not conservative to want to tear things down, to violate constitutional process, to advocate for unconstitutional means. So it's not a straight line. It's almost as if you got the liberals and the conservatives, and then you've got this vertical dimension of authoritarianism where the far right is authoritarian. Now, the far left is not liberal. The far liberal, it's not liberal to tell people what words they must use and to destroy them if they don't use the right word at the right mm -hmm. time. That's not mm -hmm. liberal. Um, the, the far left doesn't want free markets. They, they, they hate Christianity. They hate religion in general. Um, so the far left is not liberal. Now, here's the key thing. The far left, sometimes people say they're authoritarian, and that word kind of works. But what I'm finding more and more is that the far left or the radical left is actually egalitarian to a fault. Mm. That is, they believe in equality of outcomes regardless of inputs. And this is the hallmark of all of the worst revolutions in human history. The revolutions that kill millions of people. So the French Revolution descended into a bloodbath, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Communist Party, especially the Cultural Revolution. Um, these are authoritarian in a sense. But really, they're radical egalitarian. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they don't try to lift up the bottom. You create, that's hard to do. We've been trying it for a long time. What they aim to do is pull down the top. The more you can literally kill the people on top, now not in America, that's not happening here, but in France, Russia, and China, you round them up and you kill them. Mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in Cambodia, same thing. Um, so, so I think the true liberals and true conservatives and uh, that might include you and me. I'm sort of a center-left person. I'm a classical liberal. I think true liberals and true conservatives, I'd call that the middle 80% of the country, I think we need to realize, you know what? We need to make common cause yeah. here. If we want this country to survive, if we believe in liberal democracy and the U.S. Constitution, we, you know, the, the, the left needs to stand up against the radical left and the right needs to stand up against the radical right. Is that too simple? Or do you no, I think that's right. And I, I think that one of the... Um one of the surprising things to me, I was talking to a, a group of uh, conservative evangelical college students who are on a very secular, um, uh, very progressive campus. And they were really, they were asking me, almost everyone that would come up would ask me about one of two things. One of them was, how do I sort of operate in this environment where I'm holding to you know, basic Christian uh, ethic, and I'm going to be accused of being transphobic or or something else. Even though these these kids would be in their home churches, would probably be considered um, 
dangerously liberal on, on those issues just because they, you know, they're, they're, they're getting along with people. They're not making a big deal about these things, but they know that if they, just by holding the views that they hold, they're going to be accused of that. And they're asking, how do I deal with my parents who have um, been radicalized right. by uh, social media and they're into all of these conspiracy theories and, and so forth. And I'm just thinking both of those cross pressures coming at the same time. Yeah, wow. How do you navigate that? Yeah, what did you tell them? Well, I would deal with each of them individually, but the, but the main thing was to say, I kind of had almost opposite ad advice. I said to the, um, dealing with their secular, um, their secular uh, classmates, I would say, you know, most of them actually don't hate you the way that you think they do. And if you're not as intimidated as you are, you're, you're going to find that there actually are a lot of people who are curious about people who hold uh, alternative views. Mm -hmm. and with their parents, mm -hmm. I said, there's not a lot you can do other than you can't fix your parents. You can just say, hey, I want to I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be connected with you. I don't want every mm. conversation to be an argument about whether or not pedophiles are running the Department of Education or whatever the, the conspiracy theory is. And sometimes it works yeah. and sometimes it doesn't. But that's an incredibly difficult situation to, to be in. And almost everybody is in it in some way or the other right now. Oh, that is fascinating. And that makes a lot of sense. And I like your advice. Let me see if I can just go a little further. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're right on the parent front. I think you're right. Put the relationship first. You, you can't, with, with students, you can take risks of, of damaging a relationship. With your parents, yeah. your family, put the family first. And, and if that means we don't talk politics, I, I approve of that. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm, when I have, I've never, I've, I've never spoken to students in quite that situation, getting on both sides. But the advice I give, and this tends to be more to conservative students who feel like they have to you know, watch what they say, um, is first um, read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, read Ben Franklin's autobiography, because Ben Franklin was a kind of a jerk when he was younger. He was so smart, he could put everyone to shame. And his friends said, Ben, Stop it. You're alienating everyone. And he learned how to be an incredible gentleman, how to be so persuasive. He persuaded France to come in on our side against mm -hmm. their interests. And my God, what a, what a success that was for us. Uh, anyway, um, so there are skills of conversation that everyone should learn. And these are skills every young person should learn no matter what. And the key ideas are, look at it from the other person's point mm -hmm. of view. And actually, this is the central idea of, the righteous, of my book, The Righteous Mind. L look at it from the other person's point of view. Start by acknowledging that they're right about something, and they always mm -hmm. are. There's always something. And if you do that, you're halfway there because you've shown you're not here to attack. You actually think they're not crazy. You actually find some value. So start by acknowledging. Um, and then by the power of reciprocity, often they will acknowledge something that you're right about, or at least they'll be willing to grant something. Um, so that's the first thing is just basic, basic persuasion skills, basic communication skills, which require you to look at it from the other person's point of view and grant them some legitimacy. The second principle is never talk on a platform. No good can come from that. On a social um, media platform. Reach out to people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because there's an audience. And so if you can imagine, uh, you know, you, you disagree with a friend, or you dis one of your college classmates, and you have two options. You, you know, you, you say to them, well, option one, how about we, let's, let's go out for coffee, we'll sit at a, at a nice cafe and, and, and we'll talk. And option two is, hey, I can get a 1.30 slot at the Coliseum. We can be center stage. And we, let's have our talk with a lot of people jeering mm -hmm. at us. 
I mean, it's kind of obvious what's going to happen both ways. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. Uh, what, what advice would you give to pastors who are, because, I mean, if someone is, is actually teaching through the Bible, um, they're not going to be able to, with, it, with any integrity anyway, adapt that into one of the ideological silos. So you, you have to mm-hmm. be uh, speaking one day about kind of personal morality, another day about public justice. And, and, and so you're mm-hmm. going to have people who are going to be, you know, looking for all of these tribal markers uh, all the time. How do pastors learn how to communicate in teaching and preaching in a way that, that factors all that in? Okay. Well, so uh, I'll offer my advice and I'd like to hear yours. Um, mine is, is this, what I've seen in talking to university presidents and CEOs of companies is that you can't beat something with nothing. People are coming at you with a really intense moral story from the right or the left. And it's really clear about who's good, who's bad, and what do we have to do? And you can't beat that by saying, well, actually your story is wrong. Here's why. Mm-hmm. You can't beat something with nothing. You have to have your own moral resource. You have to have your own moral platform to stand on. And in secular universities, it's often hard for them to find it. Um, at the University of Chicago, the president, Bob Zimmer, did find it because Chicago, I went there for my postdoc, Chicago really prides itself on being the place where people argue and yeah. deeply intellectual. So he had a platform to stand on to say, no, we're not doing this. We're not canceling speakers. We want, you know, people can come and, and, and make their case. Um, but secular schools, and, and the president of Yale, I think, was completely bereft. He had no platform to stand on, and he basically just acceded to all of the all of the demands. Um, and so, but I, but clearly, pastors, anyone speaking within the Christian tradition, has enormous moral resources to stand on. Um, and so, first, what are the values? What are the scriptural resources? What are the virtues? And my goodness, you've got humility, grace giving people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you've got such rich moral resources. So anything you do that, that, is, is, that links to your, your moral foundations, your moral resources, and that activates a superordinate identity, we are all one congregation, we are all, all one in Christ, whatever it is, this is the oldest social psychological trick in the, in the book. A superordinate identity makes the, makes the divisions at a lower level fade away. This is why when a country is attacked, People drop the culture war right away, and they come together. At least, uh, 
you know, after 9-11, mm-hmm. he did that. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Know your moral resources, uh, link to them, activate superordinate identity. And at that point, oh, and also reach out, and also talk to people privately so you get some allies, especially on both sides of any sort of schism, and try to get them to come up with you. Try to show that you've got their support. And that way you're modeling, you're modeling the very virtues that you're trying to encourage in the congregation. So there you go. That's my advice from the outside without really knowing anything about what it's like to, to run a church. What would you say? Well, I, I'm interested in, in knowing um, what you think about. I don't know if you've read Amanda Ripley's High Conflict. Oh, yes. I love that book. Yes. Yes, I did too. And, and I might I found, even have blurbed it. Let me look for it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I, I found it really fascinating how she talked about uh, breaking the binary that when there yes. are two options in front of people, you're always going to end up with polarization. And those two options are almost always artificial. Uh, that, that if you come in with more than one option, that you actually then have some uh, some move toward consensus. Do you think she's right about that? Oh, my goodness. It's a brilliant book. Yeah. Um, it's called yeah, High Conflict. And the, the key phrase is complicate the narrative. Yes. She had this amazing article I first came across her, I think I first came across her, she had this amazing article, um, and, and if you Google uh, complicating the narrative, um, in which as a journalist, she was saying, you know, we've got this both sides tendency, you know, you cover this side, and then we, for a contrary view, we got the other side, yeah. binary, two views. And what she discovered, based on social psychological research and her own experience, is if you say, well, you know, on the, on the pro-gun control side, like it's actually more complicated. Here's some of the divisions, and they're all you know. And on the pro-gun side, if you if you show that there's more comp- complexity within each side, that forces people out of the good versus evil framework and into a more analytical, like, oh, it's an interesting. How do we balance this? Um, and in a sense, that's what I just tried to do, you know, a few minutes ago by saying we normally think about left versus right as though it's like a binary. It's not one dimension. And, and that's what I'm trying to, for those listening on the, to the audio, you can't see me waving my hands around, but I'm trying to illustrate it's not a left-right thing. It's more like a horseshoe thing where the, the true liberals and the true conservatives are sort of like the bottom left and the bottom right. And then you go up on the authoritarianism dimension. And so you get the sort of the, you know, the activists at both extremes. So it's, it's complicated. It's not mm-hmm. a single dimension. And when you do that, people can be pretty smart. Yeah, and that's, I mean, biblically speaking, you have some things that are clear either or is good versus evil. And then you have many other things where in the life of Jesus, for instance, he's he's often being pressured to decide between the zealots and the uh, and the collaborators, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and he's always saying, you're your your either ors here don't work. Ooh, where's that? Because can you give me a story that can you I'm give me a, either a quote or a well, section it's, of scripture? It's, it's all it's 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 all through. I mean, you think about the uh, when when uh, when Jesus holds up the coin, the denarius, and says, "Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God the, you know, the very very famous uh, saying." That comes because you have some people trying to trap him into either saying pay taxes, which means you're you're okay with uh, with occupation by Rome, or don't pay pack taxes, which means you're in insurrection against ah, Rome. Cool. And he just he says this is not the uh, this is not the uh, the actual story Great. that I'm he telling. He complicates you. the narrative. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I wonder as I was reading your article. Um, you gave you gave uh, multiple suggestions, policy suggestions, and, and personal suggestions for how to get through this. But you weren't you weren't very optimistic uh, at, at the at the end of it. You say things are going to get worse, 
And I wonder, I mean, I think about, for instance, Joe Biden, who was elected largely because people were exhausted with Donald Trump. I mean, I think that's that's clear. But now seems to be taking a, a great deal of a hit because he's not um, the, the sort of person who is dominating the news cycle uh, in, in some way or the other. And so do you think that going forward, it's just going to be a series of January 6th versus defund the police stuff? Or, or will be, or is there a bottom where people eventually say, we're, we're just tired of all this, we want to try yeah. something different? So uh, I've recently started reading a very powerful book called right. How Civil Wars Start by Barbara mm. Walter. And it's really frightening because when I first heard of this, I thought like, no, I, I don't think we're headed for civil war. That sounds crazy. I think we're headed for Latin America. We're headed, you know, Latin America's tried for 200 years to have democracy with weak institutions. We have strong institutions derived from British institutions, which are very good. And of course, we've improved them over the years. You know, um, that's what progress is about. Um, but if we lose trust in our institutions, they become less trustworthy. Our, our, our newspapers, our universities, our, our oh, religion. I mean, look what happened to the Catholic Church with the abuse scandal. So if we lose, lose trust in our institutions, I think we'll be like Latin America, a lot of political instability, more political violence, bombings, assassinations, which we had in the 60s. We've experienced it already. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was our future. But reading this book about how civil war started in the modern era, at least you know, since World War II, um, it tends to be you get militias on the right. Um, and when militias start forming, and they generally form, they can form right or left, but in America, they're uh, on the right. Uh, and then also you get a move to focus on identity, ethnic identity or religious identity. When that becomes central, um, that's also a, re a red light flashing. And here, both sides are to blame. We do have some white identity politics on the right, and we have the left promoting a, a really toxic form of identity politics in which everyone should unite around hatred of whiteness and white supremacy. So when you get militias and identity-based politics, these are, these are flashing red lights that we could find ourselves in far more violence than we've experienced since the Civil War. So I'm very, very alarmed. And that's why I decided to write this article. I'm supposed to be writing a book. My publisher thinks I'm writing a book on this, and it's, it was supposed to be due in August, and I told her there's no way I'll make it because I need to write this article. Because uh, I'm in panic mode, frankly. I think our country is headed for collapse unless we can take some major steps. And so I hope, let's just go through them, because I, I think your, your listeners have, there's some things that everyone can do. Um, so in the, in the, in the essay, I, I break it down into three buckets or three areas that we have to, have to, have, have to start working on. So the first... Um, is we have to adapt our democratic institutions so that they can survive in the post-Babel world when there's a lot less trust and a lot more anger. The second is we have to reform social media so it's not so toxic. It doesn't dissolve the mortar of society. And the third is we have to prepare kids so that they can handle this crazy divided democracy that we're leaving them. Mm -hmm. And on all three, there's so much we need to do. Um, so on the, uh, on the reform democracy side... Um, so I think we need to, um, we need to end closed party primaries because our Congress people aren't legislating for their constituents. They're only concerned about the people who vote in the primary. That's yeah. crazy. No country, no other country does this. Closed party primaries are a horrible idea. Um, Alaska passed by referendum, 
um, a move to open primaries with ranked choice voting afterwards for the top four finishers. It's a it's a much more sane system. Moderates now have much better chance to 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 win and to lead and to govern. So there's a lot we can do to improve our political institutions around around voting around. Uh, the Supreme Court appointments. We, we have to prepare. It's like the storm is coming. Much more violence, I think, is coming. We need a democracy that can function during that. Um, the second is changes to social media. And there, I think, the big one is just as banks have know your customer laws, you can't just walk up to a bank with a bag of money and say, here, um, open an account for Joe Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to actually, you, your bank has to know who you are. And I think the same should be true for social media platforms. Um, they're, they are having such huge effects. I'm not saying that you need to post with your real name, but before you have access to the incredible viral amplification of Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, the company should be required to prove to, for, to, to ascertain that you're a real person, you're not a bot, you're mm-hmm. in a particular country, such as the United States, and you're old enough to be using the platform. Um, I think they should actually actually find out your actual identity, which they don't publish, but that's another complicated question. Anyway, there's a lot we can do to make social media less toxic. And the third, and this is where I think your listeners will have the most, the most ability to make a difference, is we've got to stop messing up our kids as we're doing. Kids yeah. born in the 80s are doing fine. The millennials are actually doing fine in terms of mental health. Um, but if your kid was born after 1996, probably they and their friends got on social media um, when they were um, in middle school. And get it being on it in puberty is what seems to be most damaging to the brain. It, 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 all the anxiety, all the worst parts of middle school yeah. amplify. So, so it's hard to just say to your kid, you can't be on social media even though everyone else is. But if you work with your community, you work with other parents, find out your, your, your kid's best friend, talk to their parents. If you get a few kids, to, a few families to say, none of this until high school or none of this until 16. You don't get to go on Instagram until you're 16. If a few kids could do it together or a, tea, or a school or a congregation put out the message, then what do the kids do? They'll have to actually get together, which is a lot more fun because yeah. they're not performing, they're playing. Yeah. So we've got to keep kids off social media until 16 and we have to stop blocking their development by keeping them inside. We've got to let kids go outside and play without supervision. That's the way they learn skills of democracy. That is, what are the rules we're going to use for this game? What do we do when someone breaks the rules? Hey, I, you know, I think you hurt me. Uh, you know, but, uh, uh, I'm mad at you. Well, you have to defend yourself. So basic skills of conflict resolution, this is stuff that kids don't learn at soccer practice when the coach is telling them what to do. Kids have to go out to play unsupervised the way they always did before the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there are any parents listening, um, please go to letgrow.org. Uh, Lenore Skenazy and I and a few others created this uh, site to help parents give their kids a free-range childhood where the kids will develop basic social skills. Mm. I wonder if you've seen this book, Wayfinding. Um, I've heard of it. Tell me. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah how we, 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 we evolved to navigate. We're good at navigating. Yeah, and, yeah, tell me more. And the argument is that one of the, one of the things that has really harmed kids is GPS. Because mm. there's such a um, there's such a pattern of the human brain in learning by that tension between familiarity and unfamiliarity that comes with just being lost. Oh, and, I love it. And and finding your way through something. And the argument was really compelling to me because I mean that's I spent all of my time as a kid in the woods. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unsupervised, mm-hmm. learning get, my way. And you get lost sometimes. You get lost, and you have to figure it out. Yeah, I, I do think. So I just want to say, 
I just want just just to just to build on that point. I, I need to read this book. This sounds great. Um, but you know, I teach in a business school, and we're always talking about you know the importance of taking risks. About you know you, you, the people who made big breakthroughs took risks, and all almost pretty much all the great people failed over and over again. Um, you need to take risks. And you need to fail, um, especially in a low stakes environment. And I think what we're beginning to see is that Gen Z is so anxious, they're not going to take risks. Yeah. So this is actually putting our economy in danger. If we have a generation that isn't suited for capitalism, that plays it safe, that is afraid, that sees the world as threatening, that hasn't learned to find its way through the world. Uh, I mean, this isn't just a tragedy for the kids and their families. I think America could lose its its economic vitality and preeminence. Yeah, and in a, a conservative evangelical Christian context, one of the things I find is that the is that often people are lamenting things about the next generation that are the opposite of what the problem actually is. So you'll have people worried about all of the hedonism and and uh, and so forth going on. I'll say it's actually not that. It's it's more this sense of anxiety. And even with Christian kids, I mean, the the number one uh, issue that I get from Gen Z Christians is not what it would have been. 10 years ago, which would have been, you know, I'm, I'm really hemmed in by this Christian morality. I want a mm-hmm. kind of prodigal son. Now it's this sense of um, of kids thinking that God's mad at them all the time and and oh, having to come in and say, oh, I, I've got to t- tell you, you're not condemned by God. God loves you. Um, and it's very, very difficult. And sometimes with kids, what I find is they're actually doing really well and they're doing what in, in our uh, uh, concept is repentance of sin, but they think that they're failing. And there's this sense of, um, there's this sense of, of judgment that I, my hypothesis is, is fueled quite a, a bit by social media because you have that middle school sense of always being judged and watched uh, yeah. in a way that one has yeah. to perform. Uh, 24 hours a day that I think is projected onto God sometimes. Yeah. So I think there might be two things going on there. There is the perfectionism. Uh, they've been raised in a, in a world in which failure is very mm-hmm. dangerous. It, 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 you want low stakes failure. You want kids to fail a lot of time where the consequences are minimal. So there is a fear of failure. There's a perfectionism. But what I'm hearing, what you're telling me, is, is could also be signs of depression. Yeah. And this goes back to the early findings of, of Aaron Beck, the founder of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Is what's called the depressive triad. It's a set of beliefs that I'm a bad person, the world is a bad or dangerous place, and my future is bleak or dark. Mm. Those three beliefs, those interlocking beliefs, if you believe all those three things, why would you try? You're, everything's terrible. And so I've always thought of that in a secular context. But if you're, if you're a devout Christian and you're depressed, it makes sense that you would think that, you know, I'm a bad person, God is mad at me, uh, and therefore my future is dark. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Okay. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, 
Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Right. I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Yeah, and I mean, the Old Testament prophets warn that there are two ways to get to moral anarchy. Uh, One of them is to say, there's no accountability God doesn't see. But the other is to say, Mm -hmm. judgment's going to happen no matter what. uh, So therefore, uh, let me just yield to, to the anarchy. Uh, either way, oh, wow. it gets you to the same same sort of place. And I think we see that showing up psychologically. It's kind of a fa- moral yeah. fatalism, I guess you'd call it. Wow. I have one powerful. more question for you, and I know I've kept you longer than I told you I would. Oh, no, this is fun. Please. Uh, you it. mentioned in a Righteous Mind at one point, my column in Christianity Today next month is actually reflecting on this. Uh, before before this article came out, I didn't know that this was going to, to come, but you had mentioned about uh, awe and about uh, the section about what it takes to sort of break the hive mind um, and that sense of tribalization. And one of those things you said is this sense of uh, smallness before an overwhelming uh, kind of uh, reality. Um, and it really intrigued me as I was rereading Righteous Mind because it was something I think I probably just just read right over at the time. And now I think that is exactly where a lot of this, I think, is coming from. The anger is second step. It's coming from boredom. Uh, and there's this sense of tedious kind of boredom and lack of meaning in life, even sometimes in, in church uh, circles. And the way that the way that one gets this sort of feeling of aliveness is often coming through this kind of coliseum type uh, combativeness and, and and other things. Would you would you still say that that finding those awful in the right sense of that moments is key here? Yes. I've recently been thinking a lot about depth versus shallowness. Mm. I read a a wonderful Mm. book by Cal Newport called Deep Work. Yeah. And he talks about how to do anything great, anything creative, you need time. You need hours of uninterrupted time. Um, And the great writers, the great artists, you know, great human achievements are generally done in times of depth. Of course, sometimes we have to just be answering email, making dinner, responding to the kids' diapers, whatever, multitasking. Uh, but not much of value is created when you're just an air traffic controller. Um, so the more of our lives we spend in that shallow state, it's not just that we don't do anything great. It's also that we feel spiritually empty mm. because it's in depth. It's only in depth that you really can feel that you're part of something larger, that your life has meaning, that you're doing something important. It's only when you're not bombarded by all these shallow inputs crying out for your immediate attention and ping this and respond to this and notify this, um, that you are open to the, the deeper frequencies of life. And this is one of my big fears for young people. And maybe I sound like one of the you know, old, old, old people get off my lawn kids today. Um, but when, when kids got on what we what might call experience blockers, when, we, when they got phones that engage them all the time, they have no 
no room for any other experiences. Um, I fear that their spiritual development is warped too because it's all shallows all the time. TikTok is really funny. There's lots mm -hmm. of stupid shallow stuff that makes you laugh. Uh, and if there's no room for even parental input, let alone let alone spiritual experience or communication with God, um, if all the input channels are jammed up, then I think you have a kid growing up in the shallows, mm. always in the shallows. Mm. And so I think that unplugging and time in nature, I think time, time in church, time, uh, uh, time, basically opening yourself up to feelings of awe and moral elevation, I think is, is key for healthy development, for spiritual development, for maturity, for depth. So, yeah, I think there's a lot that Christian families can do to resist the pull into the shallows that all kids are subject to around the world um, and to create more depth. I would just urge, again, I don't, you know, I'm talking about my knowledge here, but it often doesn't work, as I know from my own kids. It doesn't work if you just tell them I'm doing this for your own good. And, you know. but, but one thing I found about Gen Z is that they're not in denial. They know what's happening to them. They know yeah. the platforms are bad for them. They know that their generation is messed up, anxious, suicidal, self-harming. They know yes. that. Um, and if you can engage them, if you say, you know, what, sh what can we do? What can we do together? Um, and especially what they're most concerned about is other kids and judgment of other kids. So if you, you know, if you have an ability to get a small group together, you know, three to six kids to talk about this, you know, what policy should we have? At, at our school? What should our phone policy be? Uh, what would be healthier? Um, if you engage them in it, this is the crisis of their generation, and a lot of them are really interested in it and thoughtful. Mm. Jonathan Haidt, he is the author of a new uh, essay in The Atlantic, uh, Why the Last 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. This has been a fascinating, not stupid at all conversation. And uh, so, John, I'm just really thankful for your taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure, Russell. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review there. Helps for people to find the show. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art. You'll find some show notes with some resources for you, including a link to this essay and to Jonathan Haidt's books. But don't stay on the smartphone after that. Put it away and do something deep. And check out Christianity Today, founded by Billy Graham. It has uh, all sorts of resources for you spiritually as a Christian. Click on the cover art to find out how you can get a free trial membership. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb, Pam Vodanova, and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.